Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. We biologically feel a feeling for 90 seconds. And that what happens is a lot of times we'll have a thought, we have a feeling, it goes through our body biologically, and then we think it again and the 90 seconds keeps repeating. But I argue that a lot of my clients and me in this, I feel a feeling. So it starts to sink in. Oh my gosh, I'm, you know, I'm feeling disappointed about this book. And then 10 seconds in, well, don't feel disappointed. You shouldn't feel disappointed. You, you got this privilege. You have so much to be thankful for. Be grateful. And I never allow myself to feel the feeling the 90 seconds. So it's 90 seconds. Like I literally give my clients timers, sand timers that are 90 seconds to say, just acknowledge the feeling for 90 seconds. And And when I do that, every time I practice it, I am shocked that it is like, oh, I can just say, I'm really nervous and just let it go. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Nancy, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was actually introduced to you by way of your publicist, Cher, who wrote an article on Medium about my own personal addiction to achievement and how it's really kind of led me to to a a very sort of disastrous place. And when she told me a little bit about what you did, uh, I thought, okay, perfect. Somebody who has an answer to this problem that I I think I'm facing, (laughs) which, you know, the ongoing joke, I think, among people who work with me is that every guest is a reflection of some problem that I'm dealing with in my life. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Ooh, I love that question. Um, well, my mother was a, was a nurse and so she was actually the school nurse at the school that I went to. So, um, once I, uh, she raised us until, I mean, she stayed at home with us until I turned six. I was the youngest. I had two older brothers or I am the youngest still am. <laughs> and, um, and so she was a school nurse with at our school and was very loved as the school nurse and very empathetic in what she gave to her students there. And then when she would come home, she was just not that empathy wasn't quite there as much, I would say. Um, she and I've talked about this, so I'm not sharing anything out of school. Mm-hmm. And, um, she had a very strong German background and was very much about soldier on and suck it up and, and keep going and very much about productivity and working hard and getting stuff done. And so she, to be honest, she sent me a lot of confusing messages because 
she loved Oprah and we always would be big into the self-development stuff. But I think she was so, she's so big into that to kind of figure out how to quelch her own feelings and how to find more strategies so she could be more pr- productive and more uh, a part of the soldier on crowd. So um, she one would assume she was the touchy-feely one of my parents, but actually she was not. My dad was an insurance salesman and very much worked for himself. He worked out of our house and worked really hard and was very, again, very big onto the productivity and work hard. But he was much more about empathy and showing up for people and being more about, he demonstrated to us more about that caring and understanding. So he was kind of a rough guy, but super teddy bear on the inside. And so their work, their work, their jobs, not so much affected me, but how they approached their lives affected me into going into counseling and getting um, a mental health background. And And I think too, I went into mental health initially to try to quelch my own feelings and figure out how to get past my own anxiety and kind of heal myself rather than really be um, the touchy feely woo woo stereotypical therapist Mm -hmm. is that has, that has come later to me still railing against that big time. But in the research I've done, I've found that feelings aren't something to be avoided so much. And that's been a little, a little bit of a disappointment, to be honest, but a reality. Uh So you're uh, somebody who's been raised by by a a mother who is a school nurse. And I wonder, as somebody who uh, is in the mental health profession, why do you think that we aren't uh, emphasizing the importance of mental health in our schools at such an early age more often. I, I kind of wonder, to me, the school guidance counselor was somebody you basically went in to have your schedule chosen for you. They didn't seem to do a whole hell right. of a lot else. <laughs> Either that or I didn't realize that they were there for more and uh, I should have used them accordingly. But I don't ever, I can't think of one guidance counselor where I say, oh, you know, that person changed my life. Mm-hmm. Right. I totally agree. And I, I think the same thing is, holds true for college. Like, I don't feel like I got any direction from anybody at all. Right. Mm-hmm. So why is it that the importance of uh, mental health and, and true guidance is not more prevalent in our education system? And, and do you think it should be based on your perspective? Absolutely. I absolutely think it should be. I think that the problem is that it's nuanced and there isn't a streamlined way to deal with someone's mental health and to deal with someone's feelings and what's coming up for them because it's messy. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that makes it harder because we have to be doing it individually. And that takes a lot of time. And one thing, the education or, you know, one thing we don't have is time. And, you know, time, where we spend our time is related to what we value. And I don't think we value um, mental health as a society as much as we value getting stuff done and and soldiering on and suck it up, buttercup. And because that's cleaner and it's not so messy. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, when you were in, in high school, I mean, were these issues that you were dealing with? One, one of the things is, is you mentioned that you thought you were going to find all these answers and that's largely why you went into the mental health profession. And as I was just joking to you, I think that I am constantly searching for answers uh, which is probably why I ask so many questions. And now <laughs> I wonder, I asked Danielle about this question a few weeks ago when we were chatting. Why do we constantly look for answers outside of ourselves, despite the fact that as we look, every answer seems to tell us that the answer you're looking for is inside of ourselves? Yeah, that's such a great question. I, if I, that, I ask my, myself that question all the time. Because um, I think that, First off, it's easier if someone just tells me what to do, then I have them to blame 
when it doesn't go right. And I have, you know, I can kind of abdicate responsibility to them. I, I do that all the time in my business. Um, if someone else, I follow someone else to tell me where I should go next. But I also think it's, it's just freaking hard to be present with ourselves. And again, take the time to sort through all that messy stuff that comes up and, and to figure out what's valid, what's not valid, what's my intuition, what's my inner critic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that it is, I have to, even though, you know, through my research, through working with clients, I know 100% it starts with me. Like I have to trust myself. And when I trust myself, my productivity and my um, happiness goes much higher. But I still have the default because I was told growing up that everyone else knows better. Mm -hmm. And that message of everyone else knows better is is what we tell our kids. And and instead of saying, you know, I may know better now because I'm your parent or I'm your teacher, but what do you think should happen here? What do you feel is something we need to start tapping into at a younger age? Are you a parent? I am not. Okay. Uh, the, the reason I asked is I wonder what advice you'd give to parents who are listening to this about kind of what we're talking about here, uh, in terms of reinforcing this narrative, I know best or reinforcing this whole idea of soldier on. And then the other thing I wonder is how do you start to undo, uh, cultural programming and social programming that's so deeply embedded in your life? Like, I, I don't think that I was aware of mine until I got much older and all of it failed mm -hmm. me miserably. Right. Yeah. I think that um, the the challenging part is because, you know, I was even this morning flipping through your book, your first book, and you had a list of what people told you before, um, before you, you know, moved on when you were looking for what you wanted to do next, you know, and it was, you know, stick to well-lit straight and narrow paths, follow the rules, don't make a ruckus, don't ask too many questions. You know, those are all the rules we get from the outside world, which t separate us from ourselves. But the problem comes when we take those outside rules and we internalize them. Mm -hmm. So they become our own rules and we're getting in our own way. And I think that is a challenge um, for doing, you know, and helping kids and helping younger people to recognize just to be asking them, what are you thinking about this? How are you feeling right now? And what we've done as a culture is, is, you know, we've, we've, we've went from, you know, the, the, everyone talks about, oh, everyone gets a trophy and how that's just the downfall of society. But that was in a response to everyone growing up and feeling too criticized. And so now we're going to give everyone a trophy, but that now everyone's gone the opposite way. And both of those responses feeling overly criticized, everyone gets a trophy, are because we don't want to deal with the messy feelings. And we don't want to deal with what's, how do I, as a parent, help my kid through disappointment? How do I teach him that he can get past this and, you know, without saying soldier on and without saying suck it up and without saying you're amazing no matter what. There's a middle part there that is this sucks and we can figure out a way to keep going. Mm -hmm. And that's the piece we miss is the both holding both of those. So we'll get deeper and deeper into all of this and how to do that because uh, I have so many questions. But before we get there, um, talk me through the trajectory of your career. What led to you doing this work? Um, I know we talked briefly about your parents, but uh, I don't imagine that the, the career choice that you've made is something like, oh, this looks like a career that I'm going to do right out of high school. So what led you here? <laughs> Well, it was, it was a little, it was speaking of messy. My career path has been messy. <laughs> I, um, 
graduated with a degree in psychology and a under and a minor in business which the minor in business was to appease my dad that I had that had to do something in business but um you know, a, a degree in psychology is completely useless unless you go on. But I didn't want to go on and get my master's at that point. And so I was going to work in HR and change the world through human resources. And then I quickly realized that uh, human resources and a lot of corporations is a necessary evil versus let's figure out how to make our employees happier, especially in the um, early 90s when I was just out of school. So I was a personal assistant to the HR director and lasted maybe eight months before I quit and worked in real estate for a while. And then I started my master's in counseling in my um, mid-20s and dropped out two years in because everyone... the the and I still struggle with this. The This is my main struggle with the mental health field overall is there are a lot of bad therapists in the mental health field. And there are a lot of victims in the mental health field. And our whole mentality of the profession is not so much empowering, but more so um, that it's just unappealing to the person that wants to be a go, go, go type A person. Because there is, there's like a sit down and settle down and show your feelings and a back to that woo woo stuff. And I personally hadn't gone through my own kind of, I think everyone has a multiple breakdowns in their adult period, but I had not hit that in my mid twenties yet. And so I, I say I needed to go through my own personal come to Jesus, um, period before I could really finish up that, um, counseling because I couldn't figure out where I stood, how I wanted to be a therapist. I was, again, looking outside of myself and seeing all these therapists that I knew I didn't want to be, but I didn't know what I could bring to the profession. So I dropped out of, of the program and kind of putzed around for a few years, making money here and there. And then I decided I wanted to go back and get my master's in um, college student personnel. And so I worked as a career counselor with college students for about uh, four years at a couple in, little independent colleges here in Columbus, Ohio. And that was fabulous, except it was so boring <laughs> because college students just, you know, they just are doing the same thing over and over and over again. And so it's so repetitive. I, it was too boring for me. And so by that point, I had gone through my own personal crisis and decided I was ready to go back and get my master's. And so I, you get seven years from to complete a master's or you have to start over. And it was literally the seventh year that I went back and I finished up my master's in counseling. So I was really lucky I didn't have to start everything over. And I did my master's in counseling and I started my own practice. And of course, I was going to do career counseling because that's what I had done at the... Um, when I was working with college students and I really wanted to work with adults because there were so many miserable adults that I knew in their careers and I was going to help them find their passion. And it was going to be this fabulous, um, woo woo wonderful thing. And I quickly realized that all my clients that would come in to see me, they loved doing all the assessments and they loved learning about themselves and figuring out what career was great for them. And they would leave me with a plan of how they were going to do that career and what was going to happen next. And inevitably, they would come back six months, eight months later and be like, can we go back and do that assessment piece again? Because I really liked that. And I don't think I can do this career like this. 
you know, this isn't working. And I realized that it was just the self-doubt and how much they were getting in their own way. So it didn't matter how much I helped them figure out their career or how much wisdom we gained from their assessments and learning about themselves. They didn't know how to get past their own self-doubt. And that's when I really got curious about inner critic and started working with anxiety and um, working with self-doubt. Wow. What did working with college students teach you about value systems and, and happiness and what people think they want when they're in college? And what did it teach? What did working with them teach you about adults? Oh, that is, I still, I struggle with that now. My nephew is in college and is looking, you know, trying to figure out what he wants to do with his life and has a couple friends who are trying to figure out what they want to major in. And I, and I miss that, that time of, that age range is so wide open and so like, you know, the world is their oyster, so to speak, anything can happen. And what I learned was that 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 gets that optimism gets pushed out of you. And so when I was talking to my nephew this week, I was like, oh my gosh, I have lost that optimism that of you can do anything if you put your mind to it and you can, you know, it just, you have to work at it, but it can, it can work and you can make these different majors work. And I miss, you know, that's what I wish college students, I wish, I hate that that gets taken out of college students' lives when they enter the quote unquote real world is they lose that. Um, everyone's trying to suck that out of them and make them be practical. And what do you, what is this major going to get you? And where is this going to go? And when I was working with college students, I was very much like, whatever you major in, you're not going to get a job at it unless it's a specific, you know, engineering or uh, accounting. Most of the majors are just passions that you have. And then you have to go and make a plan of how you're going to use that later in life. And I miss that idealism and that optimism that that college students have that then gets flushed out of them when they get to be adults. You know, it's interesting. I think it gets flushed out sooner, but I also happen to have gone to <laughs> school. I felt like it was done the moment I was done with my freshman year. Like I went in with this idea of anything going to happen. And then I got my first semester GPA. Then I got my second semester GPA and bit by bit. It was like the idea that anything could happen was an afterthought. It was, I need to survive and I need to figure out how to get the hell out of here. That's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Which is really unfortunate because I think that it took an experience that could have been really, really eye-opening and really mind-expanding and, and really kind of limited it. Yes, absolutely. Because when I think, you know, like I remember saying to students when I was working with them, you know, go ask people what's their career trajectory. And you will hear stories that are you know, like mine, they're messy and they go all over the place. So where they end up is this decision you're making now on what to major in is could be totally different in 20 years what you're doing. And that's okay. You know, there's so much pressure on college students to figure it out and have it all in a little box when it's going to get torn to shreds in three years mm. or a year after graduation, you know? Today's episode of The Unmistakable Creative is sponsored by Skillshare, an online learning community with over 20,000 classes in business, design, technology, and a whole lot more. You can take classes in social media marketing, data science, mobile photography, and creative writing. You name it, whatever you're interested in, they've probably got a class for it. So whether you're trying to deepen your professional skill set, start a side hustle, or just explore a new passion, Skillshare is there to help you keep learning and thriving. Some of my personal favorite classes have been taught by former Unmistakable Creative guests like Simon Sinek, who has an amazing class 
class on how to give great presentations, Seth Godin, who has an incredible class on how to become a more effective freelancer, and a whole bunch more. Join the millions of students that are already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer for our listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. That's right. Skillshare is offering premium unmistakable creative listeners, two months of unlimited access to over 20,000 classes for just 99 cents. So there's absolutely no reason for you not to go and give this a try. To sign up, just go to Skillshare.com slash create. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash create to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash create. And now back to the podcast. Yeah. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue to talk about really what got my my interest in, in your work, which is this idea of soldier on and increased productivity. I, I know this because I write about this stuff. Like this is the stuff that really has made much of what I've done possible. But one of my friends said he said you. I don't think you see. You know, he said you don't really value your time. Being he said you don't know how to do nothing. He said it's really really tough for you to do nothing, <laughs> and you always need to be doing something. And your life is measured entirely in efficiency. And and I, I you know I finally saw the sort of dark side of this addiction to achievement, where I was like every day it was kind of like all right, I'm going to pop some sort of cognitive enhancer or prescription stimulant to like keep going because this is the only way that I'm going to accomplish these goals. And I remember by the time I got through the end of August, uh, you know, I remember my friends had, you know, I had this really stressful roommate search and then I finally found a roommate within minutes. And then I was annoyed that I had beat myself up so much about the stress that I had caused myself. <laughs> and he's like, Jesus, he's like, you're really not easy on yourself. But anyways, enough about me um, and this crazy situation, but I think it kind of sets the frame for, for where I want to take this. How do we actually have this balance of, okay, I have these things that I want to achieve. They're not going to sit around. They're, they're not going to happen by me sitting around meditating and vibrating at a high frequency. Like, shit has <laughs> to get done. Uh, and at the same time, like, we all know that go, 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 despite the fact that it, it causes a lot of problems, is not only something that we actually glorify, uh, when mm -hmm. you, you look at places like Medium and, and you talk about people like Elon Musk and their 120-hour work weeks, we mix up causation and correlation, but we don't have this balance. So how do we get to this, this place that you're talking about where we're not uh, just you know beating the hell out of ourselves to try to accomplish goals? Yeah, so this is what, that question is what started me um, about five years ago. I was I would teach a lot about, uh, I call the inner critic a monger. And I call it a monger because I believe that a monger by definition is spreading propaganda. And so this voice in our head, I, I say it, the monger has three messages. Don't make mistakes, don't stand out, and don't be too vulnerable. And that voice is constantly trying to protect us from doing any, doing one of those three things or multiple of those three things. And if you listen to that voice and you don't do any of those three things, you won't do anything. You'll never, you know, you'll never get there. You never win with the monger. And so what really, I'd always been teaching about the monger and I would ask people to, you know, describe your monger and tell me about your monger. And it would be all this work on what this inner critic voice looked like and sounded like trying to get them to unhook it. But then it was a friend of mine actually came up to me at a presentation and she said, great presentation. I loved learning about the monger. I totally have one. She's really loud. And if I don't listen to her, I'm not going to get anything done. So this was all great and everything, but I need that voice. I don't understand how I'm going to work without it. And I was like, oh my gosh, me too. 
Like I'm teaching people how to get rid of this voice, but I secretly love this voice because it gets me off, off the couch. It makes me go, go, go. It tells me to keep functioning, functioning, functioning. And so that happened. And at the same time, my dad was dying of Parkinson's with dementia. And I looked at this man who had, you know, accomplished so much in his life and was very successful by societal standards, by our family standards, just as he was a good person. And he felt like a failure and had, there were certain things he didn't accomplish in his life that he had set that he should, and he was a complete failure. And I was like, oh my gosh, I am, I got to find some way to get around this because this isn't working. So I just started exploring it and reading and working with my clients And so I came up with that we have three different characters. One is this monger that I just talked about that's spreading propaganda. And so what we do is we listen to this voice and it beats us up and tells us to keep going. And it kind of, it keeps moving the finish line. So you, you know, like you write, I wrote a book and I get the book out there and then it's like, well, you didn't sell enough copies. Well, you didn't do this. And so I never am like, yay, I actually did something great. It's always changing the rules. And so to ease up that voice, everyone, you know, common wisdom is have self-compassion, be kind to yourself, you know, be, show yourself some love. And I was like, what does that even mean? Like, what does it even look like to show myself love? I mean, as a therapist, I'm still like, I don't get what, how could I possibly do that? Because if I show myself love, that means I'm going to be on the couch eating crap, watching Real Housewives instead of up in my office writing, which is where I, I want to be to hit my goals. And so I call that voice, that voice of false self-compassion, the BFF. And the BFF is eases the, um, the pressure that the monger puts on us. So a common example of this is, is you work hard all week, push, push, push. And then on the weekends, you're out partying, you're drinking too much, you're eating too much, you know, like, Katie bar the door, everything is, is, is okay. And that relieves the pressure of this monger that's been beating you down all week. But again, not giving you any, um, any closer to your productivity goals. Like it's, you're just living in this dance I call between the monger and the BFF that causes so much anxiety. And so I came up with a third character, which I think that's what was for me, what was missing from this conversation. And that character is the biggest fan. And the biggest fan is the voice that it says, okay, when I, so an example of, I'm supposed to get up and work out. And I tell myself, I'm going to get up and I'm going to work out every morning. And, you know, the alarm clock goes off and your BFF is like, dude, do it later. Like, you're too tired. This isn't going to work. Like, it's okay. We'll, we'll do it tomorrow. And your monger is like, you're a complete loser. If you don't get up, I can't believe you can't get, you know, you're not going to get up. And so these two voices just fight back and forth, back and forth. And the biggest fan. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. And says, okay, we said we were gonna do this and we feel so much better when we work out when we work out. So let's get up out of bed and do this. And so it's a higher, you know, I shouldn't say higher frequency because that sounds way woo woo, (laughs) but it's tapping into the intuition in a different way that's saying, this is what's good for us. Let's keep moving forward with that. So it's being kind to yourself, but not giving yourself this complete pass. Mm -hmm. So Earlier in our conversation, you said that you know we need to learn how to teach kids, but not just kids, probably adults as well, to, to say, okay, yeah, this sucks. It's not great, but we can get through it as well, right? So yes. I'm, I'm not going to sit around and tell you that I'm thrilled that my book hasn't sold more copies than, uh, you know, has sold less than copies than my publisher hoped it would. Uh, mm-hmm. That doesn't make me happy in any way at all, uh, despite the irony of the message of the book. But I'm also, you know, I also came to this point of, okay, you know what, like what good has it done me to 
to do this, like I've, I surrender. And I think there's a difference between surrender and resignation. Uh, but I wonder, so how do you, how do you balance the fact that, okay, this sucks, but I don't want to sit around wallowing in my misery. So how do you, how do you get past it? And how do you accept it sucks without kind of sugarcoating it and saying, oh, this is fine. Everything is awesome. Yes. So I, so I, as I said earlier on, the one thing I wanted to do and the reason I got into therapy was to figure out how to avoid my feelings. So common wisdom, taking the book example is you should just think positive and say, it's okay. You know, you sold this many books and maybe you'll sell more later or whatever, you know, choose happy. And the other thing would be, as you just said, was to be like, oh my gosh, I'm such a loser. I can't believe I didn't sell more books. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm feeling the feeling I'm sitting in it now. And I'm just going to really be all about this, how I'm such a loser. And neither one of those help us move forward. And so I, much to my chagrin, whatever, I figured out that through the research that we have to acknowledge our feelings. And one of the things that type A personalities and people that are super productive, we hate acknowledging our feelings. <laughs> Guilty. And, <laughs> and so we don't, and acknowledging our feelings just means to say, that really sucks. I'm really disappointed. I worked my butt off on this book and it's not turning out the way I wanted it to. And that's a disappointment. And when I found, um, you know, Jill Bolt Taylor, who's a neuroanatomist, wrote the book, My Stroke of Insight. And she talks about that we biologically feel a feeling for 90 seconds. And that what happens is a lot of times we'll have a thought, we have a feeling, it goes through our body biologically, and then we think it again, and the 90 seconds keeps repeating. But I argue that a lot of my clients and me in this, I feel a feeling. So it starts to sink in. Oh my gosh, I'm, you know, I'm feeling disappointed about this book. And then 10 seconds in, well, don't feel disappointed. You shouldn't feel disappointed. You, you got this privilege. You have so much to be thankful for. Be grateful. And I never allow myself to feel the feeling, the 90 seconds. So it's 90 seconds. Like I literally give my clients timers, sand timers that are 90 seconds to say, just acknowledge the feeling for 90 seconds. And and when I do that, every time I practice it, I am shocked that it is like, oh, I can just say, I'm really nervous and just let it go. Because I spend so much energy trying to be like, don't be nervous, just suck it up. You can't be feeling that. And that causes more anxiety. So to answer your question, I think it is saying about the book, oh, I'm so disappointed, acknowledge that feeling for 90 seconds. And then it is being able to slow down and get into your body and just kind of recognize that there's a body here. Because I think when we're in our heads so much, that's hard to do. Mm. And, and I want to say more about that in a second. And then kindly pull back to see the big picture. So you can pull back and say, you know, what did I want to accomplish here? What's most important here? What are my values around this book? What are my priorities for this book? It's not hitting the numbers. So what's the second goal I have around this? And you can start problem solving in a different way rather than just, oh my gosh, I'm such a loser or be grateful. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> one of the, you mentioned, you know, getting stuck in your head. I think that one of my own tendencies is that one thought pattern will lead to another and it just turns to this endless cycle of rumination. Right. So I'll give you a perfect yes. example. I think that anybody can relate to is you have a breakup 
uh, with somebody, the person ends a relationship and you literally play that thing a hundred thousand times in your head, <laughs> looking for that one moment where if it's like, okay, if I changed this in the movie, the whole story would have turned out differently. How do you stop that? Mm-hmm. That I think it is saying it, it's, <laughs> you're going to have to keep practicing over and over. And that's the part that drives me the most crazy. A, there isn't an easy way to stop that. Yeah. And I hear you that you so want one and <laughs> I wish I could give you one, but I think that's what's missing. That's the part of the conversation that's missing on all this stuff is there isn't a one, two, three system. Mm. First off, I'll say that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but this. <laughs> But the second thing I'll say is that it is about stopping the ruminating because the ruminating is you're just analyzing it. You're just in your head trying to determine if the feeling is okay, if it's justifiable, if it's, you know, what could have, how could you have redone it? How could have gone better? And I think instead of saying all that is to keep you from being like, I'm sad that this relationship ended. Uh-huh. I'm sad that this is over. And all of that analyzation is just to keep you from feeling that sadness. Wow. Uh, what role uh, have you found that culture, parents, peers, media, and, and sort of all of the various inputs that form our programming, uh, what impact do they have on all of this? Oh, I mean... <laughs> tons the um shit tons of it's crazy how much they impact because ev- no one is telling us how to do this no one is teaching us this isn't modeled anywhere that um we're all it's all like well if you were a better person you could get over this faster that's the message we keep getting mm-hmm. or you know and even i know one of my um favorite people I just adore is Megan Devine, who talks about grief. And she was instrumental in a lot of the work that I do, because she's like, this stuff is messy, and it's not going to be a smooth process. And she's one of the few voices out there that's just saying it's messy. And, you know, her message is around grief, but I would argue it's everything is messy in our, we're humans, we're not one, two, three machines. And so the idea that most of society and a lot of the messages are, you know, it has to be succinct and it has to be sound bites and quick. And, you know, even in the, just look at the political climate we're in, that everything is pulling, you know, we're, we're ripping people apart for being messy Uh when we're messy. Like that's just, you know, I keep saying it over and over, but there isn't, it's not smooth sailing. It's going to be hard and we want to find a way out of the pain as quickly as possible. Yeah. I mean, every, you know, there's so many sort of books that say, oh yeah, people who are successful bounce back quickly from setbacks. I remember hearing this in a Dan Kennedy seminar and he said, you know, he's like, people who fail basically are, are ruminating and, and worrying about something, you know, for months on end. She's like, when, when people are rich and successful, something bad happens and they're out the other side of it, like in no time. Yeah. <laughs> And and it was so funny. I was meeting this week with a, I was looking at a, an event space and I was there with a friend of mine who's a life coach and we were talking about an event we want to do. And she was saying, I want to have people in here who can tell their, talk about a failure they've had and the success they've had and how they turn that into a success. And I said, I only want to do that if we can really hear about the failure. I really want to hear about how did they wake up every morning after the failure? How did they take the next first step after the failure? I don't want to hear their redemption story. <laughs> I want to hear how they sat in the failure. And she turned to me and said, that is the classic difference between a 
a therapist and a life coach. Uh-huh. She's like, cause I'm all about the redemption story. And I said, yeah, but that doesn't tell me anything when I'm sitting in failure. I want to hear how did you get out of this? You know? Well, I can volunteer for that if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's Srini. I want to tell you about a really cool new app that I recently discovered that I think you'll find really valuable and really like. It's called Reason8.ai, and it's a note-taking app for meetings. If you have in-person meetings, you'll dig this app because it records your entire meeting, gives you a full transcript, and it gives you a summary and action items. So that way you can be more present during your meetings and you don't have to sit around taking notes. It's something that we use in every one of our meetings now, and it's been invaluable to our meetings to be able to go back and review them. Not only does it give you the transcript, a summary, and action items, it also gives you a full recording of the meeting so you can go back and you can play it if you want to check it out. So visit reason8.ai and download the app today. Again, that's reason8.ai. So we talked briefly about culture and, and you know media and programming and parents and all of that. Uh, what I wonder is the role that technology and social media plays in all of this. And the reason that this is fresh on my mind is because of the fact that I had a conversation with Daniel Laporte, but I'm, I'm reading a book right now by this guy named Will Storr, who wrote a book called uh, uh, Selfie, How We Became So Self-Obsessed and What Is Doing to Us. And what he talks mm-hmm. about is this cultural model of perfection. Uh, that like, mm-hmm. those are his words. And I, I took that and I wrote about it this morning and I thought to myself, wow, like a cultural model of perfection. I mean, that's, we spend our lives trying to live up to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, in your research, what role has technology played in amplifying our desire to live up to that? You know, what are the goods and bads here? Like, you know, what do we need to be aware of? Well, I think one of the big what you know one of the big things is that back to that the voice of the monger really gets us you know one of her favorite things is to get us into comparison that they have it figured out and if only you were like them it would be okay and you know social media is just ripe with that and it is and you know i can feel myself being you know i'm a pretty mentally with it, healthy person and i can get on facebook and be like oh my gosh look at these you know look at so and so doing that? And why am I not doing that before? And it takes me, you know, 10 minutes before I'm like, they carefully curated that image. Like that is not just randomly taken. And having that discernment is something we miss because social media is just in our faces all the time. But I think there's where I, my personal struggle with social media, and I see it in my clients too, is that for people with anxiety, sometimes social media or, you know, scrolling through that is comforting because it gives short ways to hijack our brains. And so I think some of my clients are like, but when I'm out, sometimes I just like to get on my phone and it gives me a little break from what's happening around me. And I think that is for a few minutes, that social media is okay in that situation. But I think when we find ourselves feeling highly anxious, and then we're just refreshing Twitter or re- refreshing Instagram constantly, or looking at stories of people that we don't care about, <laughs> um, that just is when we get off the the rails. You know, it, there was a uh, quote one that said, "Why are you spending time caring about people who don't care about you?" Yeah. And I, and it was meant for like, you know, if you're worrying about an ex or something, I think that was the sentiment it was taken in. But I was like, yeah, why am I following all these people on Instagram who don't even know I exist? You know, I'm learning all about their families. And if I met them on the street, we would be nothing, you know, (laughs) you know, it's just helpful to recognize that. So that's where I think, I think social media 
And the biggest danger on social media is with our kids. And, you know, I can't imagine growing up with social media. And, you know, when I was a kid and we lived out in the country, you know, you left school and you were, unless you called someone and talked on the phone, you had no connection to them. You didn't know what parties they were attending or where they were going, or there was no, I couldn't, didn't have to keep up with anyone. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, not only is it that I'm the, you know, the fear of missing out is constantly on my mind if I'm, if I'm a teenager, but it's also a way to bully kids and be like, oh, well, all these girls got to go to the movie. Why didn't I? And, and that's where I think it gets really dangerous. And as, as a parent, I think that would be really challenging to be helping kids have, you know, proper rules around that. Yeah. Well, I mean, th that's why I was really excited to see a project that I came across. Uh, one of my listeners shared it. Uh, there's a, a group of kids somewhere that have basically created something called October Offline. Uh, where oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm going to try to get one of those kids on the show to talk to them about it because I, I want to help them spread the word. But uh, so we've talked about social media, we've talked about comparison, we've talked about not beating yourself up. Is there a point at which we get off this hedonic treadmill? Like, is there any way off of it? I don't think so. <laughs> um, I haven't found one. I will say that as I have been practicing this stuff and, and doing more with acknowledging my feelings and and actually, you know, slowing down and getting into my body, that it's it comes up less. Like I catch myself faster when I'm headed down the rabbit hole of comparison and, and Mongerville that I can catch myself and be like, okay, let's come back to what's really important here. Yeah. So that's why I think this, I mean, so I think there is a way off, but it's only if we're practicing the tools that work for us. Right. It isn't, um, it isn't like, Oh, I've arrived and I've hit it and I'll never feel that way again. It's, we have to keep practicing what works for us. And the, that's the key part is, I mean, I think that's why we keep looking around for what's the answer, because everyone has a different answer to do the same thing. <laughs> you know, everyone has the, has an answer to get in touch with yourself in a different way. But it's, we got to figure out what's the answer that works for me in getting in touch with myself. Not that this answer is going to save me and get me off the treadmill period, right. but what's something that I can keep practicing yeah. daily to do this. So if nothing can get you off of the treadmill and the goal post, goal post keeps moving, how do we balance the fact that we're stuck on an eternal hedonic treadmill with finding fulfillment in our lives? And I think that comes, comes back to what are your priorities and what are your values and what's most important to you. And then when you get, that's how you get off the treadmill of comparison. And I got to keep going and going and going and, and making yourself sick with your productivity and the go, go, go. But we never look up from the treadmill to say, does this even matter to me? Is this what's important to me? You know, is it, uh, or is it that if I was more, I, I really want to spend more time with my family or writing is the most important thing to me. So I'm going to do as, you know, as much writing as possible to kind of recognize that, hey, an audience of one, maybe we're not ready for that book yet. But in three years, we will be, that will be what we're ready for. And so your book will take off. You know, we don't know, but it's getting the, being able to to quiet that monger voice with saying, this is what's important to me. This is where my values lie. And so I'm going to live my life based on that. You know, it's back to Daniel Laporte's, how do you want to feel? Yeah, I think that's the, that's the question that helps you get off the treadmill. 
You know, I write a ton about productivity and and all these things to do to manage your attention. And I write about these things because I'm interested in them and they're issues that I'm dealing with personally. And then there are moments when I think about this idea that somebody reads one of my pieces on how to write a thousand words a day. And I, I start to question, I was like, well, what if you don't want to write a thousand words a day? And what if you don't give a shit about writing a thousand words a day? Then probably don't do it. <laughs> You know, I, and I realize how much of this stuff we read on the internet that makes us feel inadequate. And I write some of this stuff. I know, like, oh, this is how to be, you know, more productive, how to manage your attention better. But then I think about the fact that, okay, well, if you don't care about any of these things, why on earth are you trying to live up to some ideal that me, some random dude on the internet, has manufactured out of thin air? Right. That's the question. <laughs> But like, because I banned myself from reading Medium mm-hmm. because um, I was so stuck in the comparison yeah. and so stuck in, oh, I need to get up every morning at 5 a.m. and I need to be meditating and I need to be <laughs> making sure I have a morning ritual and, you know, all the rules of happiness that are on there. And finally, I was like, I could pick and choose. That's the, you literally, uh, you gave me an idea for an article called, called The Impossible Superhuman That Medium, you know, teaches you to aspire yes. to be. I think that's going to be my next Medium article. Why Medium causes us to to aspire to become impossible people. Yes. Yeah. That is totally what it does. I mean, because every every article on there that I'm, you know, because of course mine is all psychology and productivity. (laughs) And so uh, they're sending me those articles. But but it is an impossible, an impossible goal. And that's that's back to that black and white. We, you know, that is the, if wherever we can with our kids or with ourselves, encourage ourselves to see the gray in life. Not that it's, you're a good author if you sell this many books and you're a bad author if you don't. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a middle ground there that's a whole bunch of stuff that makes you a success. Wow. So I, I want to talk briefly about status, uh, mainly because I think it's very relevant to what we're talking about, I think status uh, creates effectively status anxiety, which that's not my term, it's uh, Alan DeBotton's term, but I, I thought about it, I was like, wow, social media really amplifies status anxiety. And the, the funny thing is that the ability to showcase your status, despite the toxic impact of quantifying every aspect of our humanity, is basically a feature on every product now. Mm-hmm. How do we how do we navigate a world in which our social status is currently being me- constantly being measured without being uh, driven by that status and defined by that status? Well, isn't that the million dollar question? <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm full of this kinds of stuff because that's what I do. I think that um, yeah, I because I was listening to an interview you did with um, Tara. Mm. McMullen about, and you were talking about how she was saying how, you know, people get so many followers and then you were like, well, they're all the same. They're all on coach. I call it coach Island. Uh They're all living on coach Island and then they're all following each other. And so it looks like they're super popular and, but they're not reaching anyone new. And I think that that is the thing about status that you're, you saying that on that episode reminded me of, Oh yeah. Like how do I, what measure is the, what measure is status? Like, how am I measuring status? Uh, And I'm measuring status by how many followers they have or how many comments they get or how many likes they get. And then when I look at their, when I really step back and look at what they're doing to to make their feed, like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to set up my life 
to be that everything my husband and I do, I'm taking a picture to say, look how cool we are. We're at a brewery and look how cool we are. We're sitting in the backyard having a fire. I want to be in the, in the backyard with my husband having a fire. I don't want to be showing that all over, you know, putting that on as a way to get more followers. And I think so being able for me, it's helped being able to come back to, again, what is it's most important to me? What are my priorities? How can I balance that? I want some, I want to showcase my, my thoughts and my ideas on social media, but I don't want to get bogged down in having to be chasing status because that's an arbitrary measure. Well, let's do this. Let's wrap things up by talking specifically about money, which I think is a a, a really kind of an issue that hits all of the points that we've been talking about. It causes us anxiety. It causes us stress. I think that uh, I think what Zig Ziglar said was really smart. He said, "You know, money is is like oxygen. You don't really notice until you're deprived of it." Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> how can we take the tools that you've given us and and use it to to like have a better relationship with money? I guess is where I'm going with this. Oh, wow. You are a TED Talker, Oprah kind of interviewer, aren't you? Uh, (laughs) Again, I'm telling you, I'm just battling out my own demons with each person. (laughs) If if other people happen to benefit from it, that's that's just a convenient byproduct. (laughs) Well, I think that... um, That money one is a tough one because it's something I... And I'm going to derail, but I'll come back. Something that... uh, that I struggle with in my work is even though I realize that, you know, inner critic and mongers and anxiety affects all of us, you know, my work does the clients I work with and, and the people that read my work tend to be privileged. And so kind of how do I reach out to that group that, that is still struggling with this in a very different way. So that's kind of off subject to not answering your question and buying me some time to circle back around (laughs) to say, um, that, can you ask me the question again? Yeah. I mean, how do we take the tools that you have talked about throughout this conversation and apply them to the relationship we have with money? Because I think money causes almost all of the things that you're talking about, negatives and positives. Well, I think that the first thing is we don't... Money is one of those things that we are extremely afraid of. Um, we don't have an honest relationship with our money. Many of us, you know, it's just kind of something that that is just kind of there that we want more of, or we want to be able to buy certain things with. And so we don't really, again, back to that, acknowledging your feelings. I'm going to keep coming back around to that. We don't really acknowledge what's going on with our money and how much money we have, how much money we want, where we spend our money. There isn't a genuine honesty that happens with our relationship with money. And I think that can get us into trouble because if we're not really acknowledging what's happening with our money, we can't make a plan to figure out what's going to happen next. And also we really get stuck in the black and white of money that good people have this much money, bad people don't have anything in their savings. And there are a lot of, you know, we have a lot of rules around money. And I think kind of questioning those rules and trying to loosen them up a little bit to be like, is that really a rule? Like, is that a hard and fast fact? Or is this just something I've learned from my parents on how I how money is? And kind of loosening those up a little bit, I think allows us to really get in touch with what's really going on. Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, this has been really, really insightful and thought provoking, uh, as I expected it would be. So I have one last question for you, uh, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? 
I think it's back to that someone who is unmistakable is able to be messy and they're able to acknowledge their feelings without letting them run the show. So I think that they can, something can come up that's uncomfortable. They can deal with it and then come back around without getting stuck in the black and white of how they should be dealing with a certain situation or how they should be feeling. Mm. Well, well, I think that makes a really fitting end to our uh, conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work and uh, everything that you're up to? They can find out more about me at my website, um, livehappier.com. And I'm also on Instagram under Nancy Jane underscore livehappier. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.